Good afternoon. It's Friday the 19th of March 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, as usual, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, well, we'll get straight on with uh, the latest announcements on vaccines. And uh, here's Matt Hancock. Uh, he was speaking in the House of Commons yesterday, talking about the delivery and availability of vaccines uh, uh, for the rollout. And he said that throughout the vaccination programme, the pace of the rollout has always been determined by the availability of supply. Uh, he said, uh, we're currently right now in the middle of some bumper weeks of supply. That's good news, isn't it? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, we have now reached the milestone of 25 million vaccinations within the first 100 days of rollout. And we've therefore been able to open up invitations to people aged 50 and above. Have you received yours? <laughs> I haven't checked. Right, okay. Uh, and uh, he then said the Serum Institute of India are producing a billion doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine this year. So, uh, Patrick, with that uh, uh, amazing news, you would expect, and since we've been told by the British government that uh, the vaccine is the path to freedom uh, and that we've got to all take it if we're going to get out of lockdown, that that would mean that we're going to get out of lockdown. You'd think so. Well, isn't that what it's been, we've been told for, what, the last eight months, nine months? Uh, well, that the, the, the vaccine was the uh, path to freedom. It was the ticket to freedom. It was the carrot. Uh, and lockdown was the stick. This is what we've been told, but Public Health England tweeting this out this morning. The vaccine does not give you a pass. Even if you've had it, you must continue to follow the guidelines. Uh, and they, uh, they oh. quote their medical director, Yvonne Doyle, who said, uh, the very last thing we want is for people to become complacent as rates of COVID fall. Uh, the virus is very much still here and with is the risk of serious illness and death. Uh, we have been here before and we do not want the rates to go up again, uh, which we're seeing across some areas of the country. Dropping our guard now would, could lead to another dangerous wave. Uh, the vaccine does not give you a pass, even if you've had it and so on. Just look at this statement though, Mike. This is an incredible piece of gaslighting here. The, the, <laughs> the government officials want you to believe that the, the virus, that COVID is could at any moment break out and be more deadly than when it first appeared on the scene back in the uh, winter of 2020 and that we must not let down our guard and that you're, everyone's at risk of death and illness. That's not true. Every demographic is not equally at risk according to uh, Public Health England and the Office of National Statistics own records. That's not true. Yet this is the messaging that's coming out from government departments. So it's not science-based. What she's saying there is it does fall into the category of propaganda, a la what we saw coming out of SAGE, B Spy B, Behavioral Insights team. So very coercive, uh, almost scaring the public uh, into thinking that Covey is hiding behind the corner and can spring out at any moment. And we don't know when and how, and it could just be more vicious uh, than when he first arrived in the building last year. Uh, well, uh, in, on the European continent, of course, uh, Covey is doing exactly that, apparently, because uh, Paris is just about to go back into lockdown right now because they are experiencing, apparently, a third wave. Nothing to do with the testing regime at all. So, uh, but not a third wave of, of Covid deaths. It, no. A third wave of, quote, cases. That's right. So a third case-demic. Yes. A test-driven case-demic. That, that is correct. Now, the, the question then, though, is uh, are they starting to pull back on this idea that uh, 
the uh, vaccine is the road out of the road to freedom? Is this the path to freedom? They seem to be starting to pull back from it. And uh, well, Brian, uh, uh, we we played out a bit video from the BBC, which Brian commented on 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 Wednesday's program. I just want to pull out just a little excerpt from that once again, just to reinforce this point. Just have a listen to this. So the current thinking is, if you choose to get the vaccine, you're choosing to look after yourself and everyone you come into contact with. If you don't, then you and those people won't have that protection. But scientists say they need to gather more data on this issue before we can be certain that vaccines reduce transmission. And if it turns out the vaccine doesn't stop you from spreading the virus, then it's even more important that everyone gets their shots. This is really an incredible position that uh, the BBC is taking. They're hedging, aren't they? Totally hedging. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, nobody knows whether this is going to reduce transmission or not. Uh, in fact, we do know that it's not going to reduce transmission. This is not uh, a so-called sterilising vaccine. Uh, this is purely a prophylactic, as we'll come on to in a little bit. So the question is, are they hedging, Mike, or are they setting up the narrative for the next phase of the narrative? That's the question. That, that is what I believe they're doing. They're setting up the narrative for the next phase so of the narrative. So if by chance, if by chance it doesn't work. So I'm going to say this. So the BBC don't, according to their own segment, Mike, they don't know. They, they don't know. They, there's no certainty that the, of what the vaccine can do, whether it stops transmission or not, uh, whether it gives immunity. Of course, the manufacturers in their own study show that the vaccines do not provide immunity. They do not stop transmission like vaccines are intended to do. All they can guarantee here, it says that they lower symptoms in severe cases. So that's uh, not not immunity, but it's being we're being gaslit by the government, by the media, by the pharmaceutical industry that these provide immunity. They don't, according to the manufacturers themselves. So, but the, all the talking points, Mike, all of the messaging is being wrapped around that assumption or that idea. And as you just showed with the BBC, they can't even say mm -hmm. with any certainty what it does and doesn't do. So, what would be the solution to this? This is uncertainty. What, what's normally the solution for these questions? Where do you answer these types of questions, Mike? You normally do it through development, trials, yeah. long-running studies, three, five, ten years. And after that period of time, you have the answers to all of these questions, or at least you're closer to the answers to these questions. What they've done in this situation, Mike, they've put in an emergency authorization clause, they've rolled it out into the public, and we're, everyone's running around guessing, oh, maybe it does this, maybe it does that. Well, we'll find out in two years. What is this? Running that mass experiment on the, on the population, that's not normal procedure, is it? No, no. Uh, we have a, a totally unique situation at the moment with uh, the mass vaccination program being run out in the middle of what they're describing as a pandemic. It has never been done before. But look, let's move on to uh, June Rain here, who is the chief executive of the Medicines and Healthcare Representation, sorry, uh, uh, Regulatory Agency. Um, and uh, of course, they're not there to represent the healthcare industry at all, are they? Uh, but she uh, was commenting on the uh, AstraZeneca uh, suspension uh, in most European countries. Um, she said, uh, we continue to monitor safety during the use of all vaccines to protect the public and to ensure benefits continue to outweigh the risks. Okay, but that's in the situation where uh, the 
vaccines have already gone through a rigorous 10-year uh, process, for example, right? Mm. So uh, in this case, she's saying we will continue to monitor how these vaccines are doing uh, on the basis of our emergency approval for it to be used uh, for the first time in history during the middle of a, of a so-called novel pandemic. She's basically saying, we'll see how it goes. Right. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so she says, uh, we have received a very small number of reports of an extremely rare form of blood clot in the cerebral veins. Uh, occurring together with lowered platelets soon after vaccination, this type of blood clot can occur naturally in people who have not been vaccinated. Uh, it can, it may, maybe that is true, that may well be true, but that doesn't mean uh, that the vaccine didn't cause the blood clots in this case. Exactly. Uh, as well as those who are suffering from COVID-19. So if uh, the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine has uh, destroyed somebody's immune system, what are the implications here? It, it, if they're immunocompromised. If they're immunocompromised, but also we know from the flu vaccination um, that if you are vaccinated for a particular strain of the flu and you then come into contact with another strain of the flu, a variant, uh, that uh, actually the uh, vaccine can make you more susceptible to uh, illness from that uh, variation. Well, this brings us to the obvious ethical question, Mike. Uh, what if you're posed with a situation where the risk, you have to weigh the risk of taking an experimental vaccine that has not gone through the normal long testing and regulatory procedures and not taking it and relying on your natural immunity or other therapeutics which are available on the market for treatment. You have to weigh, where is the, is the risk more on one or more on the other? And if there's a more of a risk on the vaccine side, then it would not make sense that a person would take that greater risk when they have other options that are potentially better that don't have those risks. Or at least as good, at the very least, as good. And uh, again, we need to ask the question, why is there a mass vaccination rollout when there are other, when the vaccines that are being rolled out are merely prophylactics and there are other mm. prophylactics available on the market. Many. But perhaps there isn't the same level of profit in those. I don't know. But anyway, uh, June Rain then went on to say, we will continue to robustly monitor all the data we have on this extremely rare uh, possible side effect. So that's really good news, isn't it? Uh, and that should make us all feel much better. Now, the European Medicines Agency uh, this morning has said that they have reviewed uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, after the 13 European countries decided to uh, stop the uh, rollout uh, and suspended use. Uh, and they have decided that the jab was not associated with a higher risk of clots. But that's not what the Norwegians are saying. Uh, here is ScienceNorway.no, and the headline here is Norwegian experts say deadly blood clots were caused by the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. Um, and uh, they're saying um, there is uh, nothing in the patient history of these individuals. So there was a number of individuals uh, below the age of 50. We should uh, make that point. They were below the age of 50. They were vaccinated. Uh, they got these blood clots um, and uh, one of them died. Uh, they are saying that uh, it's most likely uh, that uh, the vaccine was the cause. Uh, we have the reason. Nothing but the vaccine can explain why these individuals had this immune response. Uh, and they said that uh, there is nothing in the patient history of these individuals that can give such a powerful immune response. I'm confident that the antibodies that we have found are the cause, uh, and I see no other explanation 
than it being the vaccine which triggers it. Um, so they said that these uh, health workers all came into hospital with the same, with a very rare condition. Uh, they had acute pain, they had blood clots in unusual places such as their stomachs and brains. Uh, and in addition, they had bleeding and low levels of platelets. Um, so this is uh, quite a, a, an interesting situation that the regulators uh, in the UK and the EU um, are denying any connection, uh, but the local uh, health authorities are absolutely definitive, in Norway at least, that the AstraZeneca was the cause. So if you're looking at this report, Mike, and then let's just rewind the tape a few months, and all of the manufacturers, including AstraZeneca, assured the public and the press that their products were safe and effective, and that there's nothing to worry about. And then you have reports coming in, uh, and also we look at the various yellow card data, data from all around the world, and that's not actually true, is mm -hmm. it? There, there are uh, injuries, there are bad reactions, there are deaths associated with this vaccine. Uh, so, you know, th those claims, Mike, those claims that were used to roll out and get the emergency authorization, uh, and if, if it's found that those aren't true, then could we possibly revisit the methodology or the calculus that the government has made to give special emergency authorization for these products? Would that be the prudent thing to do? Would that be the moral or the legal thing to do? That's an, uh, an open question that I hope people uh, take up because it, it, it's not like we get on the track and society has to stay on the track no matter how disastrous it gets, mm. that we have to stick to the program. This is Soviet kind of narrow thinking, mm. monolithic thinking, and it, if you look back in history, that always ends in an Badly. epic disaster. Yes. Um, now, on uh, Wednesday, of course, we mentioned uh, uh, Marek's disease, and uh, we asked, is COVID-19 Marek's disease for humans? Just as quick uh, reminder of the history of this. This is a disease in chickens. Uh, the first vaccine against it was delivered in 1970. Uh, and then what happened was that uh, vaccine immunity escape occurred of highly infectious strains. And eventually, after a period of time, uh, that got to the point that any unvaccinated chicken uh, died. Now, uh, I recognize, of course, that uh, chickens and humans are not the same things. Uh, but I think, uh, Patrick, we we had a discussion about this and and uh, you sort of you, you listed some of the criteria for chickens. Well, I did. I said that, you know, you can't compare like for like because I said chickens live in close quarters. Uh, they live in batteries. They're immunocompromised. Uh, they eat GM feed in some cases. So they're already immunocompromised. But you've made the argument as well that. Well, well, we also live in, in uh, population dense areas. Uh, we also are immunocompromised and we also eat uh, GM uh, list food. So, GM food, yeah. so there are some parallels N there. That, nutrient deficient. Uh, uh, yes. Right. So, so there are parallels. Yeah, but but, but not, uh, except not we're not chickens. Not yes. exactly. But but carry on because this is an interesting line of argument. Well, it uh, it has to be said that uh, that particular segment probably has generated more discussion and more feedback than quite a lot of the things we've done recently. And and thank you very much for all the feedback. We have read it all. Uh, and uh, it has generated quite a conversation, which is exactly what it was intended to do, of course. And it does bring us, Mike, very close to the previous 
issues that we covered, which was the foot and mouth crisis yes. uh, in England, because it was a very similar situation. Although rather than a mass vaccination campaign, the government opted for something even more extreme. A mass cull? A mass cull. And, but there were farmers at the time that we had spoke to when making the documentary film that we produced, Slaughtered on Suspicion, that said, you know, why don't we vaccinate the cows rather than slaughter them because this is what they do uh, in Europe. And that brings us into that Merrick's disease type of uh, spiral, endless spiral of vaccines, mutations, m new vaccines to, to combat those mutations or variants as they're called. Yes. And you just get stuck into this permanent cycle of mutations and vaccinations. And isn't that what Dr. Devi Srihar uh, who is the advisor to Nicholas Sturgeon from Edinburgh University, the public global public health uh, expert. This is what she was saying on national TV months ago, that we need to roll out uh, express vaccines to deal with every new variant and get those needles into people's arms. That's what she said exactly when she was on national TV. So she's really a proponent of the Merrick's disease spiral, basically, effectively. Yes, She's yes. advocating for that, yes, right? Yes, yes. Now, uh, there were two sort of main uh, pushback uh, of, uh, on Wednesday's thing. One was the focus on Geert van den Bosch. Um, so we're going to address the focus on Geert van den Bosch at the moment. And actually, he was a very small part of what was being presented on Wednesday. So I didn't think that the, that the, that the, the, the focus on him and what he had to say was quite relevant to that discussion. But today we're going to look at him in a bit more detail because obviously lots of you are very interested in him, very interested in what he had to say and very interested in what other people have had to say about him. So we'll talk about that. And you originally now. reported on his, his, uh, his statement, his LinkedIn paper, it was two weeks ago, right? Yeah, that's right. And then since then, other alternative uh, programs like uh, Dr. Vernon Coleman, Del Bigtree from the High Wire, uh, then presented uh, Dr. Van den Bosch's paper, and so, and then a, a, a sort of debate has ensued since then. We'll get into showing some of the details of that. Right, and the other pushback that I got, which surprised me a little bit, was the, the suggestion that I was suggesting that the only solution uh, is vaccines, and of course that's not what I was doing at all. Quite the opposite. What I was saying was that if we move down this road of these mass vaccination programs in this type of scenario, we're actually heading in a direction we don't want to be going in. And this is the mm. point now, is the point to be making a decision about whether we want to be doing that. And I'm saying that we shouldn't be doing that. But look, let's... And you're not the only one. No. But let's uh, let's move on to, to Dr. Geert van den Bosch himself. And uh, well, go ahead, Patrick. Well, he was really saying the same thing that you just said right there, is that we need to question a mass vaccination campaign. This is his blog right here, Mike, if you go to his website. And just right there on the front page, the opening paragraph, mass infection prevention and mass vaccinations with a leaky COVID-19 vaccine in the midst of a pandemic can only breed uh, highly infectious variants. This is what he's proposing. This is his sort of uh, hypothesis on this. And he backs it up with various uh, th pieces of evidence that he believes make his case, basically. Right, and this and this was the parallel that I was drawing with Marek's disease because that's exactly what happened with Marek's disease. 
And that's exactly what I think is probably going on here as well. But anyway. Well, we'll look at the case. So leaky vaccines, you've explained what, yes. what that means, Mike. So this is the opening statement here. And if you go to his website, you'll find a, a PDF document here. And the he's calling for the immediate cancellation of all ongoing COVID-19 mass vaccination campaigns. They should now become the most uh, acute health emergency of, of international uh, concern. So this, this is his big statement here, and he goes on. We'll just look at uh, the beginning of this paper here. So far, nobody has provided any kind of scientific evidence or rationale that massive human interventions, i.e. global imp implementation of infectious prevention measures and mass vaccinations, in the COVID-19 pandemic will lead to a decrease in mortality and morbidity rates in the human population. Now, as an opening statement, Mike, I mean, can you agree with that? Well, not only can I agree with that, but but that's pretty much what the Public Health England has said this morning in their tweet when they say that uh, uh, that a vaccine is not a pass, mm -hmm. right? This, they're, they're making exactly, exactly the same type of point. Well, if you go back to the statement here, when he's talking about uh, implementation of infection prevention measures. He's talking about mitigation policies. Yes. He's talking about lockdowns. He's talking about masks. He's talking about social distancing. The, you know, the whole nine yards in terms of COVID policies, shutting down schools, shutting down businesses, etc. So, and we'll look at his qualifications in a second and show you why he is a contentious character, especially to people on the skeptical side and in sort of the alternative media uh, side of this of this debate, but he goes on here. Uh, these large-scale human interventions have been initiated without paying any attention to the population dynamics of a natural pandemic as caused by acute self-limiting viral infections. So, you know, this he's basically outlining the sort of position. You, what do you think about that statement? No, I think that's, uh, that. I completely agree with that statement. Um, not much more to say than that. So here's where the bone of contention comes here. And it's really not, uh, obviously we agree and disagree with different things said by Dr. Gert. Uh, he is vaccine to the hilt, okay? His whole career has been vaccines. So obviously he's going to say, you know, he's gonna endorse that industry basically and say how great vaccines are in eliminating pathogens. I was not surprised by that. So there's no shock there. So, but, but I'm looking at the things, I'm looking personally for the things that I agree with him because I'm asking myself two questions, Mike. Within his peer group, does he have credibility? Does he have influence? Let's look at his qualifications here. But this is gonna set the cat amongst the pigeons. Here's Dr. Gert, GlaxoSmithKline, Novartis. Look at this, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Gavi Vaccine Alliance. Now, if you look at that CV, Mike, he would be the sort of the enemy, as it were, to those people who are calling for common sense measures regarding uh, the reaction to the COVID pandemic and people who are uh, skeptical of a mass vaccine rollout. They'll look at those qualifications by Dr. Gert and say, there's no way I will entertain you know, anything from this person. He is the epitome of evil. You know, So he's really behind this global globalized corporatized uh, pandemic ag agenda which has given us all of these disastrous mm -hmm. policies like lockdown etc so uh, that makes sense and I, i'm not i'm not surprised by people's reaction to that but again is he credible within his peer group uh does he have something to say which we agree with well we pointed out a number of things that he has said in this paper that we absolutely agree with a lot of things that we don't agree with 
But well, that, that, that's right, Patrick. But, but I think uh, Brian was making the point on Wednesday. I think we should restate the point. The point here is in covering what he has said, we're not promoting him. We're not promoting his ideas. We're reporting his ideas. And really, everybody has to decide for themselves whether they're going to uh, take anything out of what he says. But the question is, not so much do we agree with it, but is there any evidence to support what he says? Mm. And now, a lot of the criticism, we're going to come on to some of the criticism of him in a second. And uh, you'll show some evidence to support what he's saying as well. Yes, uh, because at the end of the day, if he makes a statement and there's nothing in the scientific literature to back that statement up, then fine. Mm. We, can, we can throw that statement away as being uh, incorrect. Uh, and so even if he is, even if he has an agenda behind what he's saying and the timing of it and why he's saying it now, the question is, is what he's saying true or not? Sure. And, and not only that, if you agree with somebody, you have strange alliances in this world, okay? So if you agree with someone on, say, four out of ten points mm. and you have common ground, you can actually build some agreement and some coalition mm. or at least some understanding based on those four things that you agree with, even though you adamantly disagree on the other six. Mm -hmm. So this is how coalitions are formed. This is how things get done in politics, in the world. This is how you change policy. So what we're saying is we're looking for that common ground. Let's take a look at the pushback, though. And uh, here is one of the people pushing back against Dr. Gert. This is Rosemary Fry. She's a freelance journalist, a political activist from Ontario uh, in Canada here. She was, a, I believe, a Green Party candidate. I think she ran in the 2011 uh, election there for her local di uh, district there in, uh, in Canada for the Green Party. Uh, and so she, this is, if we go to her blog, this is what she's put out. The curious case of Gert Vandenbosch. And so she talks about his open letter and this video interview that uh, he's done here with uh, uh, Philip McMillan from uh, Vagin Health here. And what, was, what I thought was interesting about this, this has been copied and reposted on many different websites. Yes. You've shown this as well. So uh, what, what we find interesting though is she's come out really discrediting Dr. Gert and basically saying you shouldn't listen to anything he says. And this is what she said here. Um, he, Gert, has zero credibility when it comes to advising the public or anyone else on how to avoid negative effects of mass vaccinations. Now, if you open your argument with that, uh, there's really no chance that you're going to have any discourse at all. And we'll go and see what else she has to say. Here's another one. This has all the hallmarks of a drug company AstroTurf campaign. So she's accusing Dr. Gert of being a, uh, a Bill and Melinda Gates big pharma plant, basically, in, into the alternative uh, media or into the conversation. That, so he's coming there with a, a, a dark agenda and he's AstroTurfing on behalf of big pharma. Now, I don't see any evidence for that other than his background and his CV. You could be suspicious of his motivations. He's very pro-vax, a vaccine, of course. So I mean, I understand where that sort of animus might be coming from. I, I think we, we should be suspicious of, of all these types of people that are, that are uh, expressing a view. There's no, suspicion is not a problem. Skepticism is not a problem. It's something that we need. We're gonna talk about trust later on and the idea of trust in the media uh, mm -hmm. later in the program. Uh, if, to, just, to just assume that because somebody has come from a professional background, in this case the vaccine industry, and therefore everything that they say is true, 
this is a mistake. Or that we, everything they say is false. Or that, or, indeed, indeed, that's a mistake as well. We've got to analyze what people say. We've got to look to see whether there's any evidence to support what they're saying and then make a decision just to, just to write someone off because they've uh, come from a particular background isn't the right thing necessarily because, you know, we do this all the time. We get in from, we, we criticize the BBC, we criticize the Guardian, we criticize the Telegraph if they've done bad journalism, but that doesn't mean, it's not a black and white thing. It doesn't mean that they, they never publish anything which we can't uh, take some benefit from. So, so uh, you know, that's called ad hominem guilt by association. Yes. It's a common fallacy that's being employed here to discredit Dr. Gert. And again, what we're saying, Mike, if we go back to that previous slide, what, what we're saying on this is that, you know, look, look at the contents of what's being said and is it factual? So th this blog post by Rosemary Fry, it's, it's, I didn't want to pick out too much in it because in terms of the uh, claims that she's made and the way she's constructed her argument, it's really all over the place, this post. It's kind of a screed, uh, basically, mixed with some, she makes some good points in there, but overall it's not a very coherent uh, piece. But this has been copied and pasted on so many different uh, websites. And so and it doesn't say a whole lot other than she has come out to discredit um, Dr. Gert um, immediately. And by the way, Mike, uh, Michael Yeadon, former head of respiratory research at Pfizer, his whole career uh, in that industry, he was one of the early voices opposing lockdown and opposing the mRNA uh, rollout of the vaccine. So if we applied the same suspicion and writing him off just because of his background, well, he, he would have not been able to contribute how much he did contribute to this conversation yes. over the last 12 months. So that's just kind of, uh, we're applying the same sort of open-mindedness to this situation here. So who else is on Rosemary's side here? Well, here's one. There's all of these internet doctors. I don't know if you've noticed this, Mike, but in the last 12 months, there's all these sort of celebrity uh, internet clickbait doctors on YouTube. Like here, Dr. Z-Dog, okay? This guy has made so much money off of the pandemic. And what's he promoting? Dr. Z-Dog is promoting lockdown, he's promoting social distancing, he's promoting vaccines for everyone, he's promoting masks. Basically, whatever the government is promoting or whatever the WHO is pushing out, these sort of doctors are pushing out the same thing. So Mike, what, are they, what does that tell you with regards to YouTube, community guidelines? You can't question any of the pandemic measures. So if you play that game, you can make hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars yes. on YouTube, and they are, and then they have clickbait thumbnails. This is how he markets his videos, basically, using these stupid clickbait, sort of weird, uh, you know, catchy uh, thumbnails and stuff like that. So, so there's, all, there's a whole chorus of these people attacking Dr. Gert, and they're with the establishment. They're with the medical, they're pro-lockdown to the hill. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's strange how this thing has, has shaped up here. This is the video uh, interview that, that we're referring to here uh, with uh, Dr. Philip uh, McMillan of Agent Health here. And you can find this on YouTube and watch it for yourself. There's a transcript of this as well mm -hmm. with the video up at 21st Century Wire if you want to read the text as well. But let's look at some of the statements that, again, Dr. Gert Vandenbosch has said. And tell me if you agree with any of these or not. Lockdowns were a bad idea. Agree or disagree? I think I agree with that. And it was a mistake not to study the virus more before launching the interventions. 
agree or disagree. I think I can agree with that too. So there's a number of things that we can agree with Dr. Gert on. And again, we disagree with him on so many things. What about this, Mike? Young people's exposure to, the, to coronavirus will boost their natural immunity. Agree or disagree? I totally agree. So this is a very strong point. So he is actually advocating, while he's a vaccine promote, proponent, Mike, he's advocating for natural herd immu immunity. immunity, herd yeah. immunity. So, and here we go. Uh, natural innate immunity, this is an exact quote, but I'm paraphrasing him. Natural innate immunity provides broad protection against coronavirus and immunizing someone is like installing software on a computer. Yes. Agree or disagree? Completely agree. Uh, and uh, the mechanism, by the way, uh, you might want to consider uh, is original antigenic sin. Uh, and this is the idea that uh, uh, when you encounter a particular infection, um, you obviously, of course, develop antibodies and, and an immune response to that. Uh, if you uh, encounter a, a variant of that, but and you have natural uh, immunity to the original vaccination mm. or the, the original uh, virus, for example, uh, then you're much more likely to produce a positive response to the to the uh, the variant. But if you're vaccinated, your immune system is effectively locked into the specific strain of the uh, virus that the vaccine provides and then when you get a variant coming along that can be a bit harder for the body to deal with so we see we've seen this with the uh, with the flu vaccine for example where you're uh, vaccinated for a particular strain in a particular year and if there's a separate strain comes along that year actually there's a much worse uh, influenza response in the community and what's that term called original Original antigenic sin. What a great term, Mike. We, we might talk about that later. But what you've just described there, Mike, and what Dr. Gert is, is hinting at there, that's within the same frame of the conversation yes. as the phenomenon known as pathogenic priming, yes. basically. And so when the first SARS virus, when they did the experiments and the ferrets died en masse, uh, and so that would, they were, they were, it failed because of the pathogenic priming. So the vaccine actually made them more susceptible to the wild virus. Mm. And by the way, this is what's happened in Africa with the polio vaccine, yes. in Pakistan, in India, in Tanzania, in some of these different countries in Africa. And so, and the WHO have admitted that, by the way. They admitted it in September. Uh, go look that up if you want Associated Press. Uh, there's also an article at 21st Century Wire on that. But just back to Dr. Gert, here's what else he said, Mike. This is interesting. Would you agree or disagree? These vaccines don't uh, prevent infection. Right, well, we're going to be coming on to that in more detail in a second. They do not prevent infection. That is true. Okay. And this is Mr. Vaccine telling us. Yes. Okay. Don't use the wrong vaccine on millions of people. Agree or disagree? Completely. So we, we agree on some of these strong points, Mike. So should we throw Dr. Gert under the bus or should we listen to what he has to say and take away the things uh, that we might agree with and maybe build build on the conversation from there. Indeed, so let's look at some other things that he said. This was in the interview itself. Uh, of course, when a virus gets into, when a new virus gets into a population, it immediately gets to the folks that have a weak immunity. That That is absolutely true once again. Uh, are the current vaccines the right weapon for the kind of war that's going on right now? And my answer is definitely no. I agree with that. Uh, because there are because these are prophylactic vaccines and prophylactic vaccines should typically not be administered to people who are exposed to highly infectious pressure. And just say again, if, uh, if there is a, a novel uh, virus going around, uh, 
this would be the first time in history that a mass, such a mass vaccination program has been rolled out uh, in that situation with uh, a highly infectious virus going around. And the key point here is, as we've been making this point from the beginning, the question has been, Patrick, whether this virus was uh, and is, uh, the, whether the mortality is high enough to justify this mass vaccination program, whether the mortality was ever high enough uh, to uh, justify the lockdowns. And our argument from the beginning has been no. Uh, and so uh, natural herd immunity would have been the better way to go. But let's come back to uh, Geert van den Bos then. He said, the key question is, why does nobody seem to bother about viral immune escape? Every single time you have an immune response that is suboptimal in the presence of an infection, in the presence of virus, virus that infected person, uh, you are at risk of immune escape. Uh, and he said, uh, so that means that the virus can escape the immune response. I mean, that wouldn't matter if you can eradicate the virus, but if you can, if you can prevent infection, but these vaccines don't prevent infection. So as we've already mentioned, and we'll bring it up again, these are leaky vaccines. He put that on the front page of his uh, open letter post. Uh, what is a leaky vaccine? Only the symptoms of the disease are prevented or at least suppressed. Uh, infection uh, of the host is not prevented. Uh, transmission of the virus is not prevented. And all COVID vaccines that are currently on the market are leaky. They are all leaky. So there is... This th is a huge problem. It is a huge problem. And in the, in the circumstance that we have leaky vaccines, then we are much more likely to encourage mutation. But just looking at these three bullet points up here, Mike, um, they, don't, they don't work the same way that they're being sold to the public by politicians, by the mainstream media, and you know, by the various stakeholders. And that's why the BBC said in that uh, little video clip that we showed that we don't know whether the vaccines will reduce transmission, but that means that it's even, according to the BBC, it's even more important that everybody is vaccinated because uh, their point being that transmission is not prevented uh, and therefore you've got to somehow suppress the symptoms. But our point is once again, that vaccines are not the only way to reduce uh, uh, symptoms. There are other prophylactics out there and some of them are, I think, more effective than, than this uh, with much reduced side effects, by the way. So if you looked at, if any normal person looked at this, Mike, and said, should we re do we need to reconsider our policy? Because that this isn't how the package was sold. They're effectively moving the goalposts, or, or Mike, they are they intended to move the goalposts later anyway, because the goalposts were never where we thought they were. That's that that's more likely what what we're looking at here. Yes. So let's let's just briefly look at a couple of uh, scientific well a couple of scientific papers here. Now th these uh, papers are from uh, twenty. I think this one's twenty seventeen. It's called Metabolic Shift in the Emergence of Hyperinvasive Pandemic Me uh, Meningococcal Lineages. And uh, from the same author with other uh, collaborators, another one from 2015, Vaccination Drives Changes in Metabolic and Virulence Profiles of Streptococcus Pneumoniae. Now, here's the key quote here. Uh, we show in this particular paper instead that vaccination induces genotypic uh, changes, genotypic changes, among non-vaccine strains which lead to increase in both transmissibility and virulence. Uh, 
Which so, is what Dr. Gert was referring which to. Which is what he's referring to. And so when we were talking about the variants coming uh, in the program, uh, of course, uh, some people were going to be talking about uh, uh, Dr. Yeadon in, in a minute and mm -hmm. what he said about the, the current crop of variants. But it's not the current crop of variants that we need to be concerned about if this scenario is correct. Yes. Uh, it's about the, the mutations, the, the, the new crop of variants that come over a period of time as a result potentially of a mass vaccination program. Vaccine derived vaccine-derived. And we're asking whether this first crop of variants, which are uh, not that significant, we have been asking this a number of times so far, have they been derived from the AstraZeneca vaccine? Because the three uh, the, the places where the AstraZeneca trials were carried out were the UK, South Africa and Brazil. Uh, and as we've pointed out many times now on this program, uh, the places where we see the, uh, the trials for that particular uh, vaccine just happen to be those same locations, UK, South Africa and Brazil. So the question therefore is, were, were this first crop of three variants that caused, if you remember those, the, the UK variant in particular caused travel to be shut down to many countries around the world from the UK, caused all kinds of things. There's no evidence that those three variants as at this point in time are any more virulent than the original. Uh, which wasn't uh, significant, uh, you know, for the majority of people uh, either. Um, but the question is, as this vaccine program roll, gets rolled out, what uh, is the potential uh, for the future? We'll go back to that headline real quick. It, they say it right there, AstraZeneca, COVID-19 vaccine, AstraZeneca. It, it confirms 100% protection against severe disease. They're talking about reducing symptoms again. Yes. But the language is so subtle that it's being uh, translated, it's being interpreted by public, by the media, by government as uh, immunity. And it doesn't provide immunity. It was suppresses symptoms, suppresses serious symptoms. So you become effectively like not an asymptomatic spreader, Mike, but a sort of lowered symptomatic spreader, potentially. And again, this is what Dr. Dr. Gert was referring to. Yes, yes. yes. So let, let's look at the rebuttal here. This is just so people can go and find this and read for yourself. This is a fascinating piece. I encourage people, uh, how broad is COVID immunity? And this is Dr. Michael Yeadon here and Mark uh, uh, Gerardot, uh, Gerardo, uh, who co-authored this paper. And this is this sort of excerpt here, fear of mutations that make their way around antibodies or vaccines is likely misplaced. And in this article, they say many things and they say that actually your natural immunity provides broader protection to the variants. The variants tend to get weaker as they uh, mutate and they, they may be more transmissible, but they're less virulent basically. And they said, no, no big alarm there. So, and again, it was rebutting or arguing that Dr. Gertz uh, warning might be potentially a little extreme there. So again, we, we say that you can go and read that paper uh, by Michael Yeadon and Mark uh, Gerardo there. Yes. So, so where does that take us? Well, the, the bottom line here, Mike, is this, and, and this is what people should take away. So we have this debate going on on the, uh, social media online here. Dr. Gert versus, for instance, Rosemary Fry. And so, but see, what do they, do, what do they agree on? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what Rosemary disagrees with him on, aside from the fact that Dr. Gert is Mr. Vaccine International and an ex-Gates man, okay? But they agree on a lot of things, including this. Mass vaccinations 
must be stopped now. Total agreement. And look at this. Natural immunity provides the best defense against the coronavirus. So based on these two points, Mike, uh, there's a lot you could build some sort of dialogue, isn't there, on this? You would think so. But if you attack the other party just based on the fact that you don't like their background or you don't like some of the things that they say, um, you're going to be basically throwing out all of that common ground. Yes. Basically. And then what do you have at that point? You have a war. I, look, I think it's important that we, we also say this, Mike. Some people have said to me on on uh, social media, I thought that asymptomatic spreading was a myth. Actually, for naturally occurring yes. asymptomatic uh, uh, situations, the peer-reviewed literature is clear. It's clear on this. It's yes. clear that there is no evidence of asymptomatic spread. But we have to have a bifurcated approach to this conversation. That's a natural occurring situation. We, we, then we are now looking at an artificial intervention. A synthetic yes. immunity situation, a vaccine-derived uh, situation of spreading. So we And they say, what about the variants? You said the variants aren't a big deal. That's naturally occurring variants. And now we have vaccine-derived variants. So these are two separate sides. And I think this is the, the nuance in how this uh, argument broke out between Rosemary Fry and Dr. Gert, um, that, that some people in this argument, Mike, are missing that nuance. Mm -hmm. they, you, should, you need to have a bifurcated approach to this conversation because you're talking about two different things. Why is this important, Mike? Because the media and government eventually, if Dr. Gert is somewhat correct even, and this becomes a problem, you, you can bet your bottom dollar the media and the government will merge those two conversations into one so you can no longer tell the difference between what is a naturally occurring situation and what is a vaccine derived problem and then at that point there's it's going to be near impossible to have any conversations intelligent conversations in this this is already confusing a lot of people in uh, medical journalism and people in public health policy and so it's going to get worse so we're adding potential problems into the mix by introducing major interventions. And again, this goes back to what Dr. G Dr. Gert van den Bosch is warning about. It's going to complicate the situation. And let's not forget that the World Health Organization has already moved in that direction slightly by uh, really arguing that there's no such thing as natural herd immunity, that the only way to achieve herd immunity now is through artificial means. Synthetic herd immunity. Yes. So again, it's the denial of natural immunity versus the uh, advocacy of synthetic only immunity. And Bill Gates is very dedicated to the idea of synthetic immunity. He basically doesn't, Bill Gates and all, if you look at all of his interviews, Mike, he denies the existence, doesn't even talk about natural immunity and people like him were all downplaying T cells. Mm -hmm. Remember last spring? Yes. They're just basically writing it off. So there's an agenda there. There's a clear agenda there. What is that agenda? There is a possibility here that there is a profit motive. There's an ideological motive in terms of te technocracy, which is, a, which is a type of a government. It's an, it's an ideological. There's a political motive, Mike, because we know how much governments love pandemics. We know how much they love the war on terror. Anything that gives the government unprecedented power is a major political motive, especially, Mike, to the party that is currently in power yeah. or the establishment that is currently in power. So there's a number of 
potential motivators there. We can't ignore this. People have to, to, to wake up now, stop being in denial. There are major motivations here to basically take society, take the world down the wrong path in terms of policy. And we need to wake up and start really asking adult questions now. The, the, all the fear mongering is, has been, I think it's, a lot of it's burned itself out now. A lot of people are coming to reality now and saying, what the hell has gone on in the last 12 months? Yes. Well, look, uh, let's move on, but uh, not too far, well, far away geographically, but not too far away subject-wise. Uh, this is from Reuters a few days ago. Uh, Reuters, uh, sorry, Australia health minister in hospital after vaccination, but Link ruled out. That's right. Here's Greg Hunt. This is the equivalent of Matt Hancock down under. You, listen, Mike, you get the best stories down in Australia. <laughs> I mean, it's so entertaining what's going on there, especially with the, quote, pandemic. So here's Greg Hunt. Now he went in for his vaccine, Mike, and lo and behold, what happened? What vaccine did he get? Well, he got the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Good. And he ends up in the hospital, Mike. And so all of the damage control reports after this was, oh, it's okay, it's okay. It's nothing to do with the vaccine. It's nothing to do. Uh, we've, we've ruled out the link. Uh -huh. So forget about it. Uh, the coincidence theorists are you know, all over this, basically, saying nothing to see here, move along. Well, look at this. Would you just believe it? He went dark for a couple of days. Nobody knew where Greg, or heard from Greg Hunt basically disappeared. The Treasury Ministry was doing the press conferences. Where's the health minister? He's out of action. And you thought it was it something serious. He had to be hospitalized. So it wasn't just a rash, was it? It couldn't have been, could it? It might have been serious. So look at this. Calls for Greg Hunt to release his medical records. And so, well, look, at, look closely here. There are calls for Greg Hunt to release his medical records for examination after he was hospitalized for cellulitis. Cellulitis, less than 48 hours after having the vaccine. So nothing to see here, move along. It's just cellulitis. Uh -huh. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, well, why don't we invest five seconds and type that into a search engine? And lo and behold, this is what we found. Here's PubMed, vaccine site reaction or bacterial cellulitis they tend to behave exactly the same way. Extensive redness and swelling at injection sites. Now, in the case of Greg Hunt, the health minister from Australia, this was serious. He was hospitalized. So this, this wasn't just a random occurrence. Logic would dictate we put two and two together, right, Mike? And we say, is it possible that the health minister of Australia had a reaction to his AstraZeneca vaccine? Is that a probability? I think, I think it's, it could, be, could well be. It's more than just a probability. What's the, how's the media reacting to this? No, 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 no. It's nothing to do nothing with the vaccine. What a public relations disaster that would be. Imagine if Matt Hancock got his, uh, his jab and ends up in the hospital. What sort of a disaster would that be for the government of the UK? I mean, the whole thing would be in free fall, right? Mm -hmm. This is what has happened in Australia, and they are completely trying to mothball this whole thing. And by the way, Dan Andrews, uh, Chairman Dan from the uh, People's Republic of Victoria, he's also fallen downstairs. So that looks like it could be a legitimate fall. There's some photos of Dan with a back brace. So, you know, we hope you get well, Dan. But again, the, the media are like, he's feeling better today. And the next day, like, he's recovering, but not quite there. This is like North Korean media there, where it's like the People's Republic of China, you know, how they're sort of covering the, uh, the dear leader. 
So this is this is what the press has been reduced to. Yes. Mainstream press. It's they've sad. Be, they've become like Pravda, based Soviet era Pravda. Yes. Pravda now is better actually. It's, yeah. There's some good articles these days, but back in the day of Stalin, not good. Well, let's move uh, to Germany, and uh, well, we have a headline here: Düsseldorfer Rheinturm mit Botschaft. Yes, let's run that through our translation machine, Mike, and see what that says. Ah, Dusseldorf, Rhine Tower with message. So this is the big space needle there in the German city of Dusseldorf, Mike. Now, the Germans have pedigree when it comes to propaganda. That's beyond any sort of debate. We don't have to argue about that. Uh, They're steeped in propaganda tradition in Germany. And I think the pandemic has really brought out that, that great quality yeah. of that, that legacy of great German propaganda. Let's take a look at the message on there. Can you read that there? Can you read that in German, Mike? Impfen Freiheit. Freiheit, yes. Let's take a close look at that and, and blow that up, Mike. Let's blow that up. What does that mean? Let's oh, well, there's an equal sign in between. Equals. Impfen so equals Freiheit, right, okay. So the irony being, look at that space needle. What does that remind you of? As a uh, well, a, a, a job. It's, it's a giant syringe, basically in the middle of Dusseldorf, and it's got this on here. C.J. Hopkins, vaccinations equal freedom. Okay, so he's saying not quite uh, our bet mock fry, but close enough. Uh -huh. Says uh, the great uh, playwright and author C.J. Hopkins at the Consent Factory. Looking at that, Mike, does that does that bother any? Should that bother people? Well, it, it probably should. Vaccines equal freedom in Germany, considering the pedigree of that sort of language. So we're, we're in a propaganda phase that is just unprecedented. And I don't think a lot of people are awake to it. And I think they really should, because it, it is kind of approaching. The, it's gone beyond the farce uh, uh, threshold now, Mike. And, and it's, it's gone beyond ridiculous. And now it's getting into downright disturbing, actually. Yes. Because this isn't just propaganda and blowing smoke. They're trying to push policy and you know, uh, compel mandatory uh, various mandates on the back of this propaganda. This is what is happening now, not just in Germany. It's happening in all different countries. So people need to take uh, a hard look at this right now. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move on to this. Uh, a number of people have pushed this through to me today. Thank you very much. Um, so this is uh, a contract which has gone out from the Northern Irish government, uh, and uh, it's entitled ID 33514090TEO COVID uh, Public Information Campaign. Um, okay, so the Northern Irish government is going to be running a COVID public information campaign. Um, really? Uh, let's see what it says. The executive office requires the immediate appointment of an advertising contractor to build on and continue to deliver a multimedia advertising campaign on COVID-19. The contact, contract duration is for two years, commencing on the 1st of April 2021, and it has a maximum budget uh, of £2 million exclusive of VAT. So uh, anybody that thinks uh, that this is going away anytime soon, uh, that vaccine uh, equals freedom, uh, I think is sadly deluded because clearly governments uh, in various parts of the UK um, are preparing for a longer term campaign. So when they're talking about a multimedia advertising campaign for COVID-19, what does that really mean in, in real speak, Mike? I know that's government speak, but... Well, what it means is, is all, if, if you imagine over the past 18 months, or certainly the past 13 months or so, uh, all the 
uh, advertising that's gone on in the mainstream press where we've seen you know, covers on the outside of newspapers, four, four sides of, of uh, the newspaper, all covered with uh, government messaging. Uh, it means all the advertising that we see on the television that's COVID related. Uh, it means all the advertising that we see on uh, buses uh, and other advertising hoardings on the streets. Are you talking about propaganda? I think that's exactly what we're talking about. It's a very good business. So it's a very good business to be in right now. It is, absolutely. So let me uh, take you to this, which uh, is a message that I received this morning from uh, a viewer, and thank you very much for it. It says, I'm writing to draw your attention to the fact that ITV News at 10 is now being introduced by the continuity announcer, or at least it was on the 18th of March 2021, with the words, now for the latest information and advice. I interpret this as a blatant admission by the broadcaster that the news is not about impartial information, but as a branch of governmental communications uh, and AKA propaganda. No doubt about that. That's pretty clear. Wow, so many people are picking up on this now, Mike. It's, yeah, it's yes, incredible. Yes, uh, now we have uh, been uh, pushing uh, this story for quite some time uh, in the last couple of weeks, digital identity. This is something the government is pushing extremely hard at the moment. Why are they pushing it? Because it's one of the building blocks uh, for a vaccine passport scheme, so-called certificates, as the UK government would prefer to call them. Strangely enough, what the EU also wants to call them. Uh, but uh, as we've made the point, I'll just briefly mention this again, we don't need to worry because there's going to be a data management policy because the UK is going to look after our data. They're going to tell us if any changes have been made, uh, for example, to our address. But look, this is really uh, what it's about. They're pushing this idea that we'll have a digital wallet on our phones or otherwise, which contains what they call attributes. It might be our age. It might be uh, our qualifications. It might be our vaccination status and so on. Uh, it might be our legal name, our date of birth, the right to reside, to work or to study. Um, well, you'll be glad to know that uh, there is a new uh, scheme uh, has been launched. Uh, it's for basically anybody selling alcohol, uh, both on and off license premises, uh, bars, restaurants and so on. And uh, they're being invited to take part uh, in a new technology pilot, uh, which is going to be about uh, building age verification checks. Um, so uh, th there's a call for proposals from the Home Office and from the Office of Product Safety and Standards. They are now going to go ahead and start building uh, one part of this. Um, and uh, so let's have a look at uh, what Baroness Williams, the uh, Home Office Minister had to say having a robust age verification system is absolutely critical in preventing the sale of alcohol to children uh, and the harm underage drinking causes. Um, so uh, we've now got to have uh, a formalised digital ID in order to uh, so the only stop reason, that from happening. Is that the only reason they've come up with as the pretext? for uh, this digital identity. Well, the key point here is, Patrick, that, that with every one of these building blocks that they're putting in place at the moment, whether it's online harms to deal with disinformation or whether it's digital ID or whatever it happens to be, they hide it behind uh, something which most people might be in agreement with. So most people would agree that it's not a good idea to sell alcohol to underage children. Mm -hmm. um, and so they use that as the, uh, the, 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 the carrot to encourage people to accept this type of regime. 
Um, but of course, uh, they have other ideas. Uh, it has much broader scope than that. And think about it, Mike. If, if they do, if obviously they're locking everybody down, they're closing down all the pubs, the nightclubs, the festivals and everything. So they've, they've suffocated the market in terms of entertainment, leisure and hospitality. So they're, they've already created an artificial demand for leisure, hospitality, festivals, nightclubs for the youth, especially because they're losing out on their precious years of youth, yes. basically. So when the government comes and says, ah, you can go into the nightclub, don't worry, you can go to the cocktail bar, you can go to Glastonbury, ah, but you need your digital app, your ID, and that's going to have X, Y, and Z on it, including, according to what the government wants, vaccine certificates built, rolled into that digital ID. This is what, this is what the government itself has said they're working on there. And they're very coy about it, Mike. Oh, we're not, we're not, we're not, we don't know if we're going to roll it out yet. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, they are absolutely working hard on this. There's gonna be so much pressure built up from the private sector in terms of lobbying for billion dollar contracts on this, that the, 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 the weak nature of today's 21st century government minister means that they're absolutely going to cave to that pressure. Yes. And so what, are, what we're saying, there are forces of nature uh, in terms of finance and power that are pushing some of these agendas forward despite the fact that there's no need for them. We, how did we survive all of these hundred years without think. a digital ID? I mean, how, how did we feed ourselves, Mike? You know, how did we... How did we uh, get into space and, 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 and you know invent all these great technologies without having being without being tracked from cradle to grave? I mean, how did the human race survive this long? I, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, look, we started the program with uh, with Matt Hancock. Let's uh, end with him again. Uh, he announced yesterday that there are now only 7,218 people in hospital with COVID across the UK. What he means by that is with a positive. Test with COVID is the key word. Yes, uh, down from a peak of almost forty thousand just seven weeks ago. So, uh, but that's uh, not enough. We have to wait longer. Zero COVID is what we're heading for. That is a policy that we want to really be promoting, uh, and uh, so we can't just uh, release lockdown immediately. I would just do go for zero testing. You can. That's the that, fast. That would be the that's easiest the fastest way to, way to, do to do zero it. COVID. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but he is also delighted to inform the House that they're backing the NHS again, to, this was yesterday, with a further £6.6 .6 billion of funding for the first half of the coming financial year. Uh, this is going to support an ongoing response to the pandemic, including funding uh, for the hospital discharge programme, infection control measures, uh, long COVID services, uh, and NHS staff support services, but it doesn't include any money for nurses' salaries, for example, as we know. Uh, and that's in addition to £341 million of funding for infection control measures and rapid testing in social adult care services, uh, continuing the, to protect some of the most vulnerable in society uh, as we cautiously ease restrictions, is what they said. So that's fantastic. Uh, apparently that brings the uh, total amount of money uh, for health services to deal with COVID to 92 billion pounds and so the, spent I, I, so I wonder, far. is the usage of the health system up or down uh, in the last 12 months? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question because uh, this is something else that he was talking about yesterday. Uh, so that's uh, that's the, uh, the uh, infectious control prevention for uh, uh, social care. It was, it was this because he was speaking at a conference, uh, the Rewired Conference, 
Uh, and uh, so he was speaking at that, uh, and he was announcing that uh, uh, NHS has to have lots of money spent for dealing with uh, historic IT problems, and uh, so there's going to be a lot more technology and so on in the NHS. Technology is reducing waiting times, apparently speeding up diagnosis and offering faster paths to treatment. But this was the key point. NHS technology is already transforming care for thousands of people with COVID-19 while enable enabling them to stay in their own homes. Um, but Patrick, as we have highlighted on many occasions over the past number of weeks, when we look at mortality in this country, uh, the, the, the most consistent place for excess mortality has been people dying in their own homes. So the digitization of services for the NHS has meant that people have stayed in their homes and died in their homes. Um, and as we made the point before, when you see that uh, during the summer months last year, uh, the mortality, all-cause mortality in the UK for people dying in hospitals was well below the five-year average, but in people's homes, it remained consistently above the five-year average. That should be pretty clear what's going on so there. So all of this money and funding is heading in, being pumped into the NHS, but the, the amount of people using the service is is reduced. That's well, the, the the number of people that are getting direct access to the Do, service is reduced. That's right, and and in fact, you know, we hear so many stories. It now doesn't of, make sense. Well, but we hear so many stories now from people, don't we? Of people not being able to get through to their doctors, not be able to get uh, any kind of uh, uh, push up towards a consultant to go and see, get some proper medical advice. Telephone, telephone yes. diagnosis, telephone treatment. Yes, that there's so much of this going on right now so that that leaves an interesting question if the is the funding is public funding for the greatest good for the greatest number yes or is it for the institution and all of the stakeholders in that institution and I'm talking about all the private stakeholders in the institution the suppliers there's a lot of money there's a lot of money cycling through this just in PPE and all of these other sort of COVID-related things, there are whole industries behind those yes. that are just plugged right in to this situation. Where's the money coming from? Well, we, you just showed government. You just showed it, yes. and, and digital leadership. Who knows the apps, the websites, all of the sort of pink elephant projects, Mike? Mm. I mean, it's just literally endless. You could have just a whole string of this this monster is going to look something like the military industrial complex after not very long if it hasn't already i think it already is yes uh, i just want to to end patrick on, on this issue of of trust now uh, if you go to the uk column website and you look at the uh, section on censored on censorship uh, there's a timeline there and really trust uh, is something which this idea of trust is something which has been pushed by the government uh, that we all should have in various media outlets. Is the media outlet a trustworthy source? And the implication is, so th this is just one example from the timeline. It's from 2017. It's uh, headlined, uh, Marcola Center for Applied Ethics establishes the Trust Project. And they're saying the Trust Project is, describes itself as a consortium of top news companies, including uh, the DPA News Agency, The Economist, Globe and Mail, Hearst Television, Independent Journal Review, Haymarket Media, and the Institute for Nonprofit News. Italy's La Repubblica and La Stampa uh, and a few others there, Reach PLC and the Washington Post. Um, and uh, search engines and social media companies are described as external partners. And of course, the, the danger with this is that, for example, search engines uh, will prioritize trustworthy sources. Um, but uh, what I really want, to, the point I want to make here, Patrick, is this is 
a false choice, really. Uh, it's something that's being promoted by the government. You've got to tr trust trustworthy sources, and anybody who's viewed as not a trustworthy source is being deplatformed, uh, or certainly getting a big red mark against them from the likes of NewsGuard and other so-called uh, trust uh, evaluators. Um, but what does this idea of trust do? What's it about? It's a, about uh, telling people that if they get the information from a particular source, you don't have to think for yourselves. You just read the words and you can trust them and you can believe them. There's to be no objective analysis or objective mm. criticism of them. And what I just want to say to people is um, you shouldn't trust anybody in this. You should make up your own mind, do your own research to use that tired old phrase. Uh, that includes from any information that we push out there, but particularly from uh, Geert van den Bos, particularly from mainstream press, challenge it in your own mind, criticize it, analyze it, and make your own decisions. Yeah, if you're not a trusted party apparatchik, because this is really what it's beginning to look like now. You have Silicon Valley with government labels for any, if you post anything for, from COVID or that says tagged vaccine in it, immediately you're pushed to Wikipedia, immediately you're pushed to the government website or trusted news outlets like fact checkers from Reuters, from all these different mainstream media outlets. CNN's strap line used to be CNN, the most trusted name in news. CNN is the most untrusted media outlet probably in the United States right now. All of these mainstream media outlets, Mike, their credibility is hemorrhaging. This shows in all the polls, mm -hmm. and there's a reason for that, because they've been lying to the public just as, as the normal default position, lying and, and doing government propaganda, promoting bogus wars, literally making fake news, uh, first-run headline news, almost on a daily basis. That's why the reputation has tanked. And the public know this. People aren't stupid. People realize that. And so you're getting into a situation that you had in Soviet Russia where people used to buy Pravda and Yedvetsia, and, but nobody, but when they're in public, they said, yeah, it's all basically, it's rubbish, mm -hmm. basically. But when they're, when, they're, when they're in private, they said that. When they're in public, they said, oh, okay, yes, yes, the papers, this is the official paper. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't want to be seen as in, in bad uh, faith with the party, okay? So this kind of uniformity of thought, this is what's being uh, promoted here. You should be skeptical. In fact, the, the reason the credibility, last thing I'll say, the reason the mainstream media's credibility has tanked so bad in the last 20 years is because they're not being skeptical uh, against the government and yeah. government claims and corporate claims. Instead, they're basically carrying water for government, for NATO, for these corporations. Instead of doing their job as a fourth estate institution, as a member of the press, challenging power, challenging government, being skeptical of government claims, of Pfizer claims, of AstraZeneca claims. No, instead they're rolling over and basically uh, repeating, parroting all of the sort of stuff that's come from government. And no surprise, Mike, because who's the biggest advertising spend for mainstream media right now? Where are they getting most of their money in the last 12 months during the pandemic? Government. From government. Case closed. Your Honor, I have nothing further to say. Yeah, so indeed. we'll let the jury decide who's trusted and who's not. Let the people decide. Yes. Okay, thank you, Patrick. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we will be back at the same time as usual, 1 p.m. on Monday. Have a great weekend, and uh, hopefully we will see you then. Bye-bye.